0: Welcome back to Hina's Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. This month, we've had the absolute honour of speaking to Wiradjuri Contemporary Artist, Curator and Aboriginal Arts Development Officer, Alicia Lonsdale. Alicia sees the arts as not only a vehicle for intergenerational cultural transmission, but also as a tool which allows the audience to view the world through a First Nations lens. With a strong grounding in culture and country, her works are influenced by the past, present and future experiences of First Nations people, with a particular focus on social, cultural, political and environmental issues. At the beginning of this podcast, you'll hear a beautiful recording of the children's song "Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes in Wiradjuri Language by Alicia. At the end of the podcast, we will hear Grandmother and Granddaughter in Wiradjuri language, which was part of the Big Little Histories of Canoundra that Alicia co-curated with the Corridor Project. This, along with other references, will be listed on the Hearness.org website. We hope you enjoy this very special episode of Hearness released for NAIDOC Week Heal Country, which calls for all of us to continue to seek greater protections for Australian lands, waters, sacred sites, and cultural heritage from exploitation, desecration, and destruction. Thank you so much for joining us on Here I'm really honoured to have you uh, speaking with us about your practice. I've been following it for some time. And especially for NAIDOC week, it's really wonderful for our listeners to be able to connect to your practice and hear more about it in detail. I I was looking through your website and your work, and you've really got such an impressive series of exhibitions you've contributed to you've curated you've been involved with so many programs and awards and things like that so it's extremely extensive and I'll share links to it on the Hines page but I think it would be good to start just discussing your background as a Wiradjuri woman from Mudgee in central New South Wales and your experience or exposure to art practice um as you were growing up and the significance of that for you know connecting to where you are and and who you are
1: um well first of all thanks so much for having me (laughs) um so yeah as you said I'm from Mudgee in central west New South Wales and I'm a Wiradjuri woman um from the Mudgee clan group uh with connections to the Wurrimae people um so my grandmother's line is Wiradjuri um from here in Mudgee uh, and my grandfather's line is from my country. Um, but as we're Raijuri people, we follow, we're matrilineals, so we follow our grandmother's line. Um, so I've been raised on Raijuri country and um, grown up very much learning about country and culture and um, community. Um, and so, like, that's kind of what we grew up with, going out with our grandparents um, on country, learning about um, Plants, medicines, um, culture and heritage. My grandfather was a culture and heritage officer, um, so we we grew up doing that sort of thing. Um, in addition to going with our grandparents or mum to different meetings, so she might have gone to a you know um, a land council meeting or an education meeting somewhere away, and we'd always go and we say we'd be sitting under the table or sitting in the background listening, and I think that was really good because we kind of learnt that growing up. So. It wasn't like when we turned 18 and went to become involved in community organisations that we didn't have any background as to how things kind of worked um yeah so that that's pretty much how I grew up in terms of art like I did art at school um, and then like you know I think it's around year nine when you start doing careers um, and so I brought the paperwork home for an artist and all the different jobs you could do that was like a flyer thing and um yeah I was quick smart told that that wasn't a real job <laughs> And I had to get a real job (laughs) and I was just so deflated. I didn't do art after that um, at school. Like, yeah, I just chose not to do that, but I still did things and would sell things. So it was was pretty much what you sort of think of with Aboriginal art in terms of, um, you know, paintings about dreams, time stories or country, or, you know, people would want um, a painting that represented their family and their totems and stuff like that. So I would do things like that and I would do weaving as well. so, yeah, I didn't go into a job in the arts. I, um, I finished year 12 and I became a cultural and heritage officer here on country. And so, um, so I was the women's sites officer and so we'd go out recording women's sites, um, doing surveys with different companies um, and looking after country. And so that's, that's what I did for work, um, but still did my own, you know, art on the side. Um, and then in 2011, I got a job with Arts Out West, which is a um, regional arts board. Um, and so our office is based in Bathurst. And originally it was just a job for helping with a, um, an event. And then, yeah, I'm here still, you know, 10 years later. So, so originally I was the assistant to this job. So this, so, and that was for about 12 months. Um, and then I took on this role as the Aboriginal Arts Development Officer. And that's been really great. That's probably the first thing that kind of changed my career because there were so many opportunities to not only engage with community, which for, for me, because it's I'm not really based in the office, I'm more, you know, laptop, computer and car and travel around the region working with community. And that part was good because um, I already had connections to people in the communities. Um, but in terms of being exposed to, I guess, the art world, um, there were lots of opportunities to, um, for professional development and to connect with other arts workers and other artists. So I think that was probably the first thing that really started me thinking about my arts practice. Um, and it was just really great to have the opportunity to do, to do some of those professional development um, things that we've done. And then that probably led to the, my change in practice, I guess. Um, so I was part of the West Farmers Program um, with the National Gallery. And that was different artists and art workers from all over Australia, went down to Canberra. um, And that was really great in terms of seeing what what else is out there in the art world. So as part of that, you were supposed to bring presentation of this is your art, this is what you do. And I'd already sort of got to a point where um, weaving and painting and doing things for people like that wasn't really challenging for me. So I actually sold everything that I had like that. um sold it or gave it away. So I went down there with no presentation and said, like, now I'm basically an open book, like I'm I'm looking at trying something different. Um, so it was very full on and very intensive. Great in terms of learning about back of house and how a gallery works and conservation and all that sort of stuff. Um, but more important, I think it was to see the diversity, you know, art doesn't have to be a painting on a canvas on the wall, like it can be
0: anything. Yeah, that's so fantastic. Um, like understanding I guess the that your background more came obviously from that community activism and engagement point of view which then connected into the arts in a activist kind of way I guess you know that beyond just the the making that you were doing yourself and then to have the bravery <laughs> to just kind of leave all that behind and like you say be an open book for change because I think you can really see in a lot of your works there's a great diversity of practice and also mastery, you know, of the different things that you're choosing to work with um, and bringing together different languages, you know, like I'm thinking specifically of the car, the um, the first one, here we go, it's called Proof 2015 where you took the back of a, an old car, painted it and you've got paperwork in there. Is there the paperwork? Is the paperwork identification paperwork from your family members? Um, yeah, it is. So that was,
1: that was my first exhibition and first type of different work um, after that was Farmers Program. So that was part of the Left Field project. So that was with a different arts board, Arana Arts. And so that project was um, getting regional artists, to, Aboriginal artists, to work with um, contemporary Aboriginal artists and um, sort of like a mentoring sort of project. And getting them to think differently about the practice. So it was a lot of artists who'd been doing the typical painting and stuff like that, um, and getting them to sort of think differently. So that was the first work which I really cemented my idea on, <laughs> um, and that's probably one of my favourite ones. And so the story behind that was, um, so we didn't really have a theme for that exhibition, um, and the works that I chose to do were all based around aboriginality. what does that mean to people and from the inside and the outside I guess and so that work was sort of talking about um someone I knew at the time who um their identity had been challenged so often that they literally carried their family tree and photographs in the boot of their car and if anyone would challenge them um they would pull that out (laughs) and you know, So through our discussions over there, it was like, well, do you think you could ask her for that information? And I was like, no, it's probably not going to go down well. So I just decided to do that with my family tree um, and photographs and um, writings from my grand, great-grandfather. So he was a political activist in the 1920s. Um, and so we were always brought up with that, that sort of sense of activism and fighting for community and people. And um, so, yeah, I used a lot of his writings and letters that he'd written to the government and um photographs and births and marriage certificates all the sorts of things that people have to pull together as that proof of of aboriginality in terms of the paperwork sort of stuff and um yeah I decided that I was going to use the car so I went to the wreckers and bought bought half a car or got them to chop a car in half for me and then yeah came back and
0: fixed it all up and yeah so it's so fantastic like it's so beautifully finished as well like the the paintwork on the on the card almost looks like a toy car, but you can tell it's real sized, you know. Have you kept it? Have you kept the back of the car?
1: No, I didn't keep that one, no. Oh no, did you sell it? No, I didn't sell it, but a lady wanted to use it in her garden. So
0: it's got plants growing out
1: of it now. Oh a lucky lady. <laughs> but yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think there's a series of works around identity that come kind of at that time kind of thick and fast 2015 the um the dog tags work and the original claret is that what you call it yeah original claret um bloodstain work um and and then were you thinking of that as a collection of works or Um,
1: well that was all part of that one exhibition um so the yeah proof was the one that i submitted the idea on first like we only had to do one work but I had all these ideas, so I just wanted to do it. <laughs> um, and so original Claret, that, that was sort of talking about, you know, how people ask, well, how much Aboriginal blood have you got? And then you've got blood quantum testing um, that was sort of being talked about at the time that, that they use in, you know, in the US and Canada. And um, so all those sort of conversations about that. And so that was a giant light box with um, microscope slides that had literally drops of blood from all different Aboriginal people, you know, who were, you know, from blonde-haired and blue-eyed through to, you know, very obviously what someone thinks of as Aboriginal. Um, so, yeah, that, that was what that one was. And then um, dog tags, that was with the, the giant dog tags. So that was sort of talking about, again, that, that um, I guess, proof proof of Aboriginality. So it actually had um, an exemption certificate on my mother-in-law. It had my grandfather's Aboriginal certificate my mother's Aboriginal certificate, and I was going to use mine, but I couldn't find it at the time. I literally, like, I have never—I got it when I joined an organisation when I was 18 and I'd never used it for anything, so I literally didn't know where it was, which horrified someone in the community because they were like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, if you can't find it, you know, what are you going to do? And I was like, it's a piece of paper. It doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to me. But for us as Aboriginal people, like those exemption certificates... Um, back in the day like that's what you had to have to, to access basic things that everyone else could, could access but it also meant that while you had that you basically couldn't associate with your own people um, you know it was like you were giving up that that Aboriginal identity to be able to go into town or you know um, but it kind of continues through to today where you've got to have that Aboriginal piece of paper to to access certain benefits um, we're the only people in the world who have to have a piece of paper to prove who we are, you know, <laughs> which is, is just ridiculous. And that's what I kind of wanted to highlight. And for us, those exemption certificates and those letters today that people have to get, they are dog tags. So that's why I kind of blew them up like that.
0: Mm, yeah. I think it's a really powerful series of works because, like you say in one of your artist statements about kind of seeing the world through, a, you know, Aboriginal lens or First Nations lens and how what are the, the different ways that you have to navigate society and, um, you know, things you want to do and culture um, differently and just making these things really clear, um, you know, that people just forget about, you know, we don't, we don't know that this is going on, you know. Yeah. It's like you kind of walk
1: in two worlds you know, you have the everyday stuff that everyone has, but you also have that, you know, that cultural lens or cultural layer that's there as well. That, that for me, that's how I've been brought up. That those things are important. You've got to think about those things when you make decisions. So sometimes things are a lot more complicated for people than just, you know, basic decisions. Um, and that can be because of their cultural values and and how they've been brought up and stuff. So
0: yeah. Like I'm just wondering about like the act of well the act of making them or the process of making those works did that did that make you feel relationship to your identity in a different way like did it did the process of the art making um, help you or or highlight anything that you didn't know before do you feel that it was a visualization of um, a representation of things that you that you'd kind of already been thinking about a lot
1: um, no I think for me like I've been lucky in that you know we've been brought up to be very strong in our identity and confident in who we are and you know so I didn't have any issues with my identity but it was kind of looking at issues that we often see that different that our mobs different mobs have in terms of their identity and whether that's because there's stolen generation or um you know, silent generation where they haven't grown up learning that they're Aboriginal or not even knowing that part of their history and then they find that out and then they're kind of searching for their identity. So it was more, it wasn't about me, it was more looking at the issues that our our community face.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you about the work 2016 So Many Children, um, the white stiletto with the wattle flowers in in it I mean it's such a striking image and I was just wondering could you talk a little bit about that what what that works about
1: yeah so that was um uh, my first solo exhibition at the Western Plains Cultural Centre in Dubbo um and so that again was kind of a mentoring program for regional artists and so you could do anything you wanted and at the time um we were um going to court to get some of my nieces and nephews back with um with family. So um, it was already four, four children that were under mum. Um, and there were another two that were removed from my sister and were taken to another town 30K's way. And so we were going through the process of um, going to court um, to get the kids so they were all together so that they weren't separated as brothers, as brothers and sisters. Um, And as a part of that process of being, you know, registered as a care and having inspections in your house and, you know, kind of becoming a bush lawyer to figure out what the legislation means and what rights you do and don't have and interactions with the the system. Like it was very frustrating and very scary. And it wasn't just mum and it wasn't just us. There was so many people who were having the same experience. So I chose to do the work around the out-of-home care system and the impacts on Aboriginal children and Aboriginal families and to kind of give them a voice. So I chose to do that through the artworks rather than through text. Um, and that was an exhibition where that was using art as another language because because of the situation that we were in, we couldn't really say what we wanted by words, but I could do that for the artwork. So I deliberately didn't have any wall text to explain it. Um, and so that work was specifically talking about um, New South Wales and the amount of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. At the time, the Western region had the highest amount of children. I think it was like 5,000 or something like that. And so that was like, you know, it was an old woman who lives in the shoe, so many children she didn't know what to do, and it was basically, you know, sort of take riffing off that. And sort of, um, so I created that work with the, the waddle to represent the children that are just overflowing in that system. That was, was specifically about New South Wales, but there was another work that... Um, represented the 16,000 Aboriginal children on any given night that were in out-of-home care. Um, And there was another work that um, it was basically quotes from mothers and grandmothers and, you know, people who were caring for these children and from children, quotes of things that had been said to them by department staff or you know, things that had made them feel like they weren't important and that they were just babysitters and all those sorts of things. So it was kind of taking people's experience and our own experience and giving a voice um, to that through art. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very powerful. And, uh, and well, another work that I wanted to touch on while we're talking about the injustices that take place, I found a piece of very powerful writing by you about one of your works called Inconvenient Truth that was shown across art projects in 2017. So it's a it's an installation with a red carpet that's unrolling and stopping at the wall so it doesn't completely unroll and there's a broom next to it. And if you don't mind, I'll just read some of your artist statement from that. So you say, we live in the land of wine and honey. Uh, there is still a failure to recognise that this has grown from the grounds which have been manured with the carcasses of Aboriginal people. We also need to talk about the 26 Rajri people who were driven into the swamp on that same land, killed and their heads cut off, boiled and sent to England for scientific study. If you're going to present the history of our country, present all of it, not just that which is sanitary and convenient. And, um, you know, I didn't know that happened. Um, It's so, you know, visceral, obviously, the way you've just, you've put it there, what's happened what's happened in that situation and in many situations um, across Australia and Tasmania, no doubt. Um, The idea of the spirit of the land and then the spirit of the people that trauma of the people in the land, is that something that you feel when you're on the land, that trauma that's there? I think you do,
1: especially if you're near those places where those things have happened, which is a lot of places around here. That's probably the thing that Mudgee's known for is that, you know, all the massacres and this being a sorry place because of, you know, how many people were killed here. Um, you know, even in terms of those those words in, in the beginning of that, like that's from taken from two of the probably most most known comments about Mudgee area. Um, so in terms the you know manuring the ground with the carcasses of our people, like so that's that was from a quote from a councillor um, years ago here in Mudgee, um, and the other one about the uh, people being driven into the swamp and killed that's um in blood in the blood on the wattle um and so that's that's kind of what people know about mudgie that you know the way that people were treated here um and yeah for us it is it is very very traumatic and you know there are those sorry places that it just yeah and then when you have people say that oh you know we just need to get over it it's in the past it's not that we're living in the past but the past lives in us um, and that intergenerational trauma is passed down through through us, you know, from one generation to the next. And when you cover it up and you don't talk about it, you know, and I guess what I was thinking with that work is, you know, Mudgy's, you know, a very it's tourism is the major industry, and it's like come to Mudgy and we've got the wine, and we've got this, and we've got that, and but they don't want to talk about that sort of stuff. It is all swept under the carpet. And you know, if, you, if you're being honest and you're being truthful and you're talking about reconciliation and healing, like even with the NADOC theme, then you need to talk about those things because that's the reality of what happened. And that is part of the way, the the reason that people are the way that they are because of what's happened to to our ancestors. Like that's a a legacy that we've all inherited. Um, And I think that, you know, people need to be able to talk about that and to express how they feel about that. And then on the other side, people need to listen to that and they need to hear that and they need to respect that. So, yeah, so I think that with the, especially with the NAIDOC theme, um, I think that's something that will be really coming to the fore, I guess, in the next probably six months in, in our area. Um, and particularly too, because there was a whole issue of um, celebrating the bicentenary of when Europeans came to this area. Um, and so there's already been debates in terms of, you know, well they should just get over it and everyone should celebrate and why don't you want to celebrate so yeah i think that more and more that will in towns across australia that will be coming to the fore where you know if people don't talk about it it's just going to be a thing that sort of is bubbling under the surface um but in terms of like country like and those sorry places, like all we can do is is try and I guess talk about that with our young ones and pass that knowledge on about that, but also heal country where we can, um, you know, that that's all we can really do.
0: Mm. And I think, you know, this, kind, this work that you've made for this and talking about it, um, you know, presenting it for consumption, you know, so people can understand um, what's happened. It's so poignant because of the, you know, like you say, the image of Mudgee, this tourist destination, and come and have our wine and our fine food and people go there from the city and have a fancy weekend. But, you know, like learning about this history of the place, wouldn't that be a more well-rounded, actually, culturally integrated and healing experience for people when they go there? So it's not just about taking you know what they can eat and what they can drink and their experience but it's actually about forging those kind of healing relationships as well um coming to want to learn these things as as a way of teaching our young ones as well do you know so that we don't just keep perpetuating the same ignorance
1: yeah well the theme for that exhibition was it was basically um a group of artists who looked at local uh, museums and their collections so I went to three different museums like in Imagi Golgong and Kandos and um yeah looked at how we were represented or not represented uh in those museums and it was the stereotypical primitive stone age tools where something was in there mm. um, nothing was talked about like of, of what had happened to our people it was basically the stone age tools and no um explanation, no connection to place for those objects, um, you know, rather than saying that, you know, this was a Kooloman from, I don't know, the Kujigong River. It was, you know, um, stone tool donated by Mrs. Brown or whatever. So it was very much looking at that we weren't represented in these collections of, of our local area um, and that that history wasn't told. It was just, this is a primitive Stone Age thing where it was represented. Or it wasn't represented at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think it's shifting at least within the education system of young ones? Be you know, has it has that changed at all in Australia? Like, because I know growing up that we that's all we learnt about was different tools. You know, like we, there was no history, there was no politics, there was no discussions about massacres, there was nothing like that. And do you, do you know whether it's changed? Because I know you have some young children under your care. I think it's it's
1: a slow process, and and I think where you have Aboriginal communities that are proactive on working with schools, um, that's where you bring about that change. Like we've made a real effort to work with our schools here, and they've been great in terms of like having cultural awareness with our community, um, going out on country with us, learning about history. For a lot of them, I think it's um, a fear of doing or saying the wrong thing, and therefore they don't do anything. But for us, I think you know. We'd rather them ask questions and, you know, the only stupid question is you don't, the one you don't ask. So we'd rather them ask and then we might say, well, that's not appropriate, you know, you can do this. So we've sort of worked hard on those relationships and I know that people are doing that in lots of different communities. Um, so I think it is, it is changing, um, but it's just not as fast as we would always like it to be. Um, and And I think a lot of it is, you know, where people don't necessarily want to change or they still want to teach about Captain Cook, discovering Australia. I think seeing other teachers doing it and other schools doing it, I think that kind of encourages them to to change too. And I think too, like that cultural education on our terms, like we've done a lot of that here in the community where we bring them on our turf and we teach our way and it's not PowerPoints and papers. And that can be very disconcerting to people who are used to that sort of like PowerPoints and handouts and it's deliberately putting them in, you know, in our ways of learning and teaching, which is talking and listening and, you know, um, listening and really hearing what people are saying. I think there's great value in community doing that because to me, where someone goes online and does that sort of thing or they bring in an expert from somewhere else to a community who they're not part of the community, they don't know the history of place, to me, that's not as effective as where the local people who live on the ground, who know their history, who know their culture, that's the people who should be should be educating others about about them and how to how to engage with them.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely, and I think that that different ways of knowing and absorbing information and understanding um, is so important. I mean, I want to speak about some of your individual works that you've made um, that that really clearly speak about <clears throat> the politics of place um, and the use and misuse of the land and kind of putting this together in um, conversation with one another in the installation, such as a 2015 disambiguation. Um, the, it's a beautiful sand circle. That's the first time I met you, actually. It was shown in Cementa, and you did a wonderful artist talk up on the old tennis court there explaining the work and there was different piles of, of things like wheat and salt and coal um, within this um, sand circle, which was, was shown again in heartlands Artlands um, 2016 by Jan Mundine. Um, there's also Fate of the Usurp 2018, which is really powerful work, um, generations of local women. Um, witness change of three major coal mines um and then the the grass work awaken which is a a grass circle beautiful grass circle about the dispossession of country i'm wondering in the making of any of these works did you feel that your relationship to place changed through the making of of those works
1: i guess for me it was giving voice to place it was giving voice to place and to to history i guess. and so for, like, disambiguation, like, we basically, you know, um, we're told you can pick your site anywhere in town. And I, so I chose the old tennis court and I actually used the, the sand that was left there in the tennis court to construct, like, a series of concentric circles. And it was basically telling um, that story of place from pre-invasion to now and the impact of um, dispossession um, on people and place. Uh, through that work so each circle basically represented a period in time and so you know it was pre pre-invasion um when when um all of the massacres and stuff were happening at candles because that again was like Mudgy, there were a lot of massacres and um you know the rivers red and bled, red with the blood of our people out there so um i depicted that in another i guess circle um and then it was, you know, the, the impact of, you know, agriculture and clearing of land and, you know, then all the environmental issues associated with that. And then the, I guess, the overcoming, even over top of that, of um, the coal mining industry and how that. So each circle represented that period. And I guess those, those industries, all those major things taking over from one another. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of giving voice to that, that history of, of country in that area. Um, and I think if, and that was one thing when I was asked to put the work in Artlands, um, the following year, like that was the one thing I was a little bit worried about because I'd made it for that place and it was so specific to place. Um, I like to use, I guess, natural materials from place as well. And that's why I chose to use the sand that was there and to work with that. So yeah, I I constructed that over, I think three days in the pouring rain. (laughs) Um, moving all of that earth around and then um, at the end like removing all of the you know like the wood and the salt and the materials that I'd brought in and so removing from that from that and returning it back to how it was before I before I came there yeah.
0: Did you want to say anything specifically about the other two?
1: Yeah so um, fate of the usurped. so that was actually talking about so four generations of my family so diamonds for us represent generations um, so each diamond basically represented what, you know, what my grandmother saw in terms of country. And so I had um, some stone tools. My grandfather um, makes stone tools still. And so they weren't taken off country. They were things that he had made for educational purposes. And so they were there to represent sites um, on country on a very important part of country um, that she saw growing up. And that they visited, and that, that they still maintained cultural practices. And then the next um, diamond represented, my, I guess, my mother's view. And so um, that's when the long wall mining had come in, and those places started disappearing. So some of those stone, stone tools were gone, and you you know the um, the the lines in across it represented those long walls. And then my generation, so things that I saw as a teenager going out on country, and um, you know. Uh, the sites officers and my grandparents, and recording those places, and then you know, the devastation of those places. Um, not if they don't exist anymore. Um, and then the final diamond up the top was um, representing my niece, so places that my grandmother had saw, or my mother saw, I'd, I'd seen don't exist anymore. Um, and then the boxes at the end represented, I guess, the fate of those objects you know when those places are going to be destroyed they go in they pick up all the stones they put them in the boxes in keeping place and that's it you know and it's kind of you know people often think oh they're doing a great thing by having that keeping place and look what we saved for you but I guess they don't realize that I can't teach my niece about those places from objects being in a box because it's not about the bones and stones it's not about the objects it's about the cultural landscape and place is what makes those things um important that's part of all part of that story and you kind of can't showing one without the other um you know it just does it doesn't have that same that same thing like um she would never be able to go to those places and learn like I did off my grandmother and like my mum did off her mother and grandmother. So that's what that work was talking about. Um, and I think like with a lot of my works it was it was things that was happening in the community at the time. So Um, At that time, we just had um, a collection of stone tools returned to country after, I think it was 25 years they'd been away for. Um, And so that was from a place that I'd seen when I was a kid and mining went through. Um, At the time, it was the first time community really had to um, have a say that we don't want this place destroyed and they really thought that by saying no, we don't and writing letters and all that sort of stuff that, that they would change that outcome. And it was devastating for the community. Like I remember just seeing how upset people were that that didn't happen and that it was decided that that place would be destroyed. And so all of those artefacts were taken and were off country for 25 years to be scientifically studied and they had just been returned. So that kind of inspired this work. And like when I've had to do, um, you know, different talks about my work. I've kind of realised that from, from doing that sort of thing that when you've got to look at your work and think about what you're going to say, um, I've kind of realised that, yeah, I tend to do works that um, are reflecting what's going on in community or in family at the time. So, yeah, that was definitely one that was, that was relevant at
0: the time. Mm. And, the, um, and the Awaken Gamara, Gamara work, um, it's beautiful, grass circle um, and the, you know the, I mean the shape of it's wonderful and and this idea of bringing back the ecological knowledge um, that we've you know lost
1: um, so it was that was for the river arts festival in Forbes so I talked to community there about what sort of story they wanted to tell um, and they'd been doing a lot of work around um uh, Wiradjuri language so reclaiming Wiradjuri language and teaching kids and um generally in the region there'd been a lot of work done on uh, reintroducing the skills around cultural burning um, and identifying native plants and grasses and that sort of thing. So um, I talked to community first uh, before I decided on that work. Um, And so like literally two, three days before the exhibition, I didn't know what I was going (laughs) to do. And that kind of didn't come until I had to go and put it in Um, And I drove back and forward each day. And that was kind of where I would think about, you know, the conversations I'd had that day and what I was going to do. So I decided to use the grasses, native grasses, to kind of tell that story about the dispossession of country and culture and language and, you know, knowledge about bush foods and medicines and all those sorts of things. And um, then the reclamation of that and the bringing back of that to people. Um, so the grasses in the middle were native grasses, so and they were collected from from country. So I had permission to take that. So I literally, on the second and third day um, of going to set up, I would collect the grasses on my way over. So I'd leave early in the morning. Um, I had permission from where to where to get them from, and so basically the middle of that spiral shape was the natives, and then it was introduced species, and then it was the bringing back in back of those native. Um, grasses by the end of that spiral and so for me it was that was kind of representing that you know that reclamation of um cultural knowledge by people and community yeah
0: because mm. I think you can also see that um like a really deep connection with place and where you're working over longer periods of time um, being promoted by you for other people to do in your curatorial works as well as specifically the cool burn one which relates to the idea of the, the burning or the care of the land through the, the burning process. Um, I'm wondering if we talk a little bit about the way that you work as a curator and how much um, of your personal practices or your cultural practices of connecting to place um, affects the way that you devise these curatorial projects or the way that you execute them, bring them into being. Yeah, definitely. Like I th- that was... So that project was the first time I'd collaborated
1: with um, the corridor project. Um, so Phoebe Kadri was my um, co-curator on that one. And it just came about from conversations. Um, at the time, the local land services was uh, really supporting bringing that practice back into country. Um, so they'd brought a fire practitioner, uh, Victor Stefferson, they brought him down and, you know, the local mob around Caron Orange were getting, you know, trained up in that. learning about country and learning about all the things that you have to learn about when you're doing that burning so it's not just go out and light it up whenever you feel like it's you've got to learn all these other things to be able to do that burning you've got to learn about you know um sky stories and you know how to read the stars to be able to tell when you can burn certain parts of country or to understand about the animals because that you know you've got to know um when the emus are laying from the the emu in the sky, you know, when the emu's are laying, so then you know you can't burn stringy bark country, that sort of thing. So it was, it was, that was going on in community and it was just, um, you know, of real interest to both Phoebe and I. Um, and so basically we hatched a plan to bring together um, Aboriginal and non Aboriginal artists and to give them immersive experiences on country, both on Wiradjuri country and then we also took them up to Cape York. Um, and just to get them to to be immersed in the community and to talk with people and then to come back and create work based around their own experience. Um, and it was just I find it's a really good way to do it, and I think there's so much value in in people engaging that way. Um, and it didn't necessarily mean that they had to do, you know the non-aboriginal artists had to do their work um, I guess, from that cultural perspective, or it wasn't about appropriating Aboriginal culture. It was about gaining an understanding of country and an understanding of cultural practices, and then them creating work around that.
0: Just on that topic, when you mentioned um, the cultural appropriation, you know, like bringing non-Aboriginal people to work with Aboriginal people and experience country um, in a new way, Uh, I'm wondering where is that line between reflecting upon honouring, paying homage to and then appropriation?
1: Like that's something we've really thought about in terms of the artists that we chose. Um, You know, we wanted people who could get along as a group because you never want to take people away and they all can't get along. So that was part of it. But it was also in terms of, you know, were they respectful? Were they people that we could take to community to establish real relationships with, to have conversations with? Um, you know, and to really encourage them to, to talk to people and if they wanted to use elements um, reflecting on Aboriginal culture to get permissions for that, that sort of thing. So I think part of that was in terms of thinking about who we're going to get, who do we know is going to be respectful um, and, and honour those people that are sharing that knowledge with them. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, people did do that um, and they did ask and then, you know, they, they might have asked those community people or they might have asked me as an Aboriginal arts worker because um, that's often like I'll get phone calls from non-Aboriginal artists um, asking about that, you know, and, and asking about protocols and how they can work with communities. So part of my role is sort of brokering those relationships and, and just getting people to talk. Look, it's about talk, talking relationships respect respect or yinjamara in our language that's probably the most important thing um, that underpins everything you do so I think if you go in with that respect and have those um, relationships and conversations then then you don't really have well we haven't had that problem you know um, we found that where people do that it people are happy to share with them and then they've been really happy to see what you know, what they've produced um, from their experiences. Um, so yeah, that was the first time we'd really done that. And the artists got a lot out of it. And so that led to other projects um, with Phoebe and the corridor project, um, using that same sort of model, just bringing different people together with, you know, from across different art forms and just sharing that knowledge, having that exchange, you know, um, whether it was around, burning or country or the bush or, you know, whether it was around spy stories, um, you know, and then letting them develop work from their experiences. Yeah.
0: Because mm. there's some fantastic, you know, the series of three, I think, the the big little histories of Canoundra um, with Craig Walsh and Phoebe again um, and then the Star Picket project, which was more specifically related to the the stars and I thought that was that was really was really beautifully described in the curator's statement if I could just read a little bit that kind of struck me Um, here it said you're working with knowledge systems from cultures across the globe that attempt to interpret the world around us and have provided cross-cultural meaning relating to the physical and the spiritual realms Indigenous stories developed over millennia and have been passed down through oral traditions, providing direction for daily life across the sacred and the sec- secular. From when to hunt and gather, social structures, navigation to cosmology and explanations of life beyond death, and then so as, as an as an overall curatorial statement, bringing together the spiritual and the physical, uh, or the etheral and the and the and the earth, I guess. Um, and you can see that really clearly in your the work that you made for that as well, called Eternal. And I guess I was just wondering if you'd like to speak a little bit about the relationship with working on country and that deep earth connection and then being aware of the sky and having this sky connection. Because I think in my perception, um, you know, Westernised perception, I can see it as two separate, Things and I think that that space of bringing the two together, I think, is where a lot of magic happens. Even though I'm trying to figure out how to do that more in my life, um, how how do you see those two come together, or how do you experience those two coming together?
1: Um, I think for the artists involved, that was that was the main thing that they got out of it. Um, like it wasn't just about the Aboriginal story, you know, for for this is the emu in the sky, this is the story for it. It was that, but then it was also, this is how it connects to country. So we look at that to be able to to know when um, ceremonies perform, to know when we can collect emu eggs, um, to know when we can't collect emu eggs because it changes shape, um, to know when we can burn that country where they lay their eggs. So it was giving that Aboriginal cultural perspective and I think that's where people really got that we don't see um earth and sky as separate like it's all country and it's all interconnected mm-hmm. um, so I think that was that was the real value in taking them on you know those immersion trips and so that was out to the Corridor project at Kara and then down to Lake Mungo to get again that different cultural perspective um, but I think too that the other thing that I thought was really great out of that project was the different artists sharing their um their I guess connection or their interpretations or values when it comes comes to the stars and so you know um one artist had a real fear of that when she was a child you know to her that that was a fearful thing Um, so it was really interesting to just hear different perspectives and different I guess stories from from all of the artists um, and then for for them to be able to develop work in that way, but yeah, I definitely think that they that it kind of unlocked for them that it's not just the stars up in the sky and that's it, um, that it is all interconnected for us. And you know, and in terms of my work, that was very much talking about um, that you know when when we pass, you're not just dead and in the ground like, and you know, it's not just um, you die and go to heaven or hell. It's for us, it's you know you. When it's your time, you pass and you return um, through, through, through this certain part of the sky, you return to the spirit pool and you wait for your, uh, you re-energise and wait for your time to, to be reborn um, until you choose your parents for, you, for the next life. So that's kind of the angle that I chose. Um, in the gallery space, it was actually a large work that um, it had campfires to represent, you know, those campfires of the sky people. Um, darkened walls which yeah that was challenged I didn't want to paint walls but I made them paint the walls to kind of create that space um, and then it had um, sand on the floor and those footprints I guess with the footprints too there was a nice relationship with um, the fact that we were down at Lake Mungo where you do have those preserved footprints from from ancestors from long ago so there was a nice connection with that as well yeah and those footprints that kind of you know, one, two, three, gone, you know, that kind of up. So it was kind of just pulling from, drawing from different things that we were taught growing up and then just choosing elements of that.
0: Mm, How fantastic. And because you've got like a netting, does the netting symbolise anything? Yeah, it was basically, so so that spirit pool,
1: like in symbolism, like what I was taught from um, women elders was that is represented by, like you basically go back into a, a giant big net in the, in the spirit pool, so you pass through the big, the big old tree in the sky, um, in a dark part of the Milky Way, and you pass through that, and then you, it's represented by that net, and so that's where you re-energize until you choose your parents.
2: A as in above, E as in pin, O as in pod, R as in father, E as in bead, O. k k r, L, w, r yeah. Bobbing. Bobbing. Miri. daga daga nina nina nana nana daga yana daga nina yana ina daga gabiya daga makey daga gabiya Donna makey daga gabi Donna taki nina gabi Gbi Nina Gabi mm, neither, 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 Daga Garling. Garling. Nina Garling. Nina Gabi Dagaling Daga Galing Nina Galing Nina Galing Main Main Gugubara. Gugu Barra Garu Garu Momboin Womboing Bili Bili Gulanga Goya, Gadi, Gadi, Pujan, Pujan, Dinawan, Dinawan, Tundu, Tundu, Nana Gali, Nana Gali, <Nama>. Minyan Nina, Minyan Nina, Nana Dangam, Nana Dangam Daga Dangam. Daga kuda. Dara. Uh, Dara kuda. Daga Babin. Daga Babing. Daga miri. Daga miri. Daga gagan. Daga gaon. Daga minga. Daga Milan. Daga Queen. Dadanindu. Dada Nindu Dada Nindu Nina Nadu Ninanadu, Ninanadu. Yamandu Yamandu Gubara Gubara Rajari Yamandu Gubara Rajari Yamandu Yamandu Gubara Gubara Rajeri Rajari Now together Yamandu Gulbara Yam. Rajari. Yamandu Gubara Rajari. Nadu Galba Rajari yali. Okay. Yali. yali. Nadu Galba Rajari Rajari Yali. Nadu Galba Rajari Yali. Okay. domara Weri main ga dan ninto ki nini ya nei bujung gan mo do wiki qarya yambu yala tulubu yala yalanbia main ga Bungu. Wanana Gigilara Nungilara. Injamala Mangilangu. Bangiala. Nanada Garaygu Pilakilangu. Yandu, Karaybu, Bilaglangbu, Nanagiri.